Grace and mercy and peace be yours from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to read just a small portion of today's gospel reading to you from John chapter 11. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death, nor is it for God's glory. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Those who walk in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when people walk at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. So far, the reading of God's word. We'll get back to more of the text in a bit. Let me take you back to March of 2008. Uh, The mayor of a a city in southwest France had a problem. Uh, The problem was his little village was running out of space. Uh, It wasn't in housing. It wasn't in the retail district. And he wasn't even running out of space at City Hall. It seems that they were running out of space in the cemetery. There just was no more room for graves. It was full. And apparently, people were dying to get into it. (laughs) Now, the mayor tried to buy land uh, that was next to the cemetery, across the road from the cemetery, and back of the cemetery, but the administrative court ruled that his village was not able to do that. And so the mayor having no space left in the cemetery and unable to buy any more land to bury any more people, did what any politician would have done. He passed a law. The law informed the 260 residents of the town that they were no longer allowed to die. In fact, you can see his ordinance. Their ordinance read, all or a person not having a plot in the cemetery and wishing to be buried in Saporano, are forbidden from dying in the parish, offenders will be severely punished. Now, everybody knew that that was a silly law. Uh, You can't stop people from dying. All you can do is determine uh, what to do with them when they actually do die. Now, in ancient Israel, the bodies of the dead were immediately washed upon death, and then they were wrapped up in winding claws. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that corpses were usually perfumed with various spices, 
And if you remember the Easter story, you know that Jesus was wrapped up with 100 pounds of spices, which was the amount that was always used for the burial of a king, which is rather interesting. Now, the perfume was partly to honor the dead, but mostly it was used to um, disguise the smell of decay that set in in a few days. Now, they didn't have any of the advanced embalming techniques that we have today to stop a body from decaying. So bodies were generally buried in a day or so. In fact, today, most Orthodox Jews would be buried the very next day after dying, if possible. Now, poor families would just take the deceased out into a field, dig a hole, and drop the body in. Uh, Richer families could afford to use tombs, caves that had been hollowed out and blocked by a stone rolled in front of the entrance. Now, as we go further into the text in chapter, in verse 38, it basically informs us that Lazarus and his family, Mary and Martha, were relatively wealthy people. Because it said Jesus came to the tomb, it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Now, of course, we all know the rest of the story. Lazarus dies. He's buried. And four days later, Jesus raises him from the dead. But, you know, if you read through this story carefully, there are a couple of oddities in this story. This is oddity number one. You know, Jesus could have been there before Lazarus died. I mean, from the way this story plays out, there's no mistaking the fact that Jesus absolutely, positively knew Lazarus would die even before Lazarus even got sick. Now, as I said last week, Jesus did such great miracles and such great healings, but I doubt that every healing and every miracle was uh, pre-planned by Jesus. But the way that Jesus responded when he heard that Lazarus was sick tells me that this miracle was kind of arranged ahead of time in the very courts of heaven. Again, I want to take you back to the verses you see on the screen, verses 11 and 13. It says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. Now, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. But after hearing this, Jesus does something which is very strange. He stays where he's at two more days. This is knowing that Lazarus had died. Yet, verse 6, yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two additional days. So when you stop and think about this, this is the oddity. Jesus could very well have prevented Lazarus from dying had he shown up a couple of days earlier. In fact, that's what both Mary and Martha say a little bit later in this chapter today. They both tell him the very same thing in verse 21. Lord, if you had been there... My brother would not have died. And guess what? They were right. And they knew that Jesus had already healed dozens, maybe hundreds of people up to his point in ministry. They also knew that Jesus had raised at least two people from the dead. And so the moment that Lazarus was deathly ill, they sent word to Jesus because they knew if Jesus came, Lazarus wouldn't die. But Jesus didn't come. And... Lazarus died. That's the first oddity. Here's the second odd thing about the story. It's how Jesus responds to the funeral. He weeps. He cries. That's the shortest verse in the Bible in the old King James. Jesus wept. When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled 
Jesus wept. Now, I want you to think for a moment. If Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to die, why did Jesus cry? And if he knew he was going to raise Lazarus back from the dead, even before he gets there to the grave, why would he stand there and shed tears? Well, I think it's very simple. I think he wept because he saw Mary and he saw Martha and the other people weeping. In those funerals, they actually brought professional weepers and wailers out there to help them with it. And this grief at what was going on just tore at his heart. And he shed tears because of their sorrow. Well, you might ask yourself, well, what does this teach us? Well, I think it teaches us several things. It teaches us that there will be some times when Jesus doesn't show up when we want him to. There will be times when you and I pray and pray and pray and pray, and it's going to feel like Jesus isn't there. Like he didn't show up at the sickbed of Lazarus, and he allowed Lazarus to die, and he allowed his family and his friends to mourn. Now, I got to tell you, when I was reviewing the text again, preparing this message, I'm not really comfortable with that. In fact, as I sat writing this message in the last couple weeks, I, I got to this point. What I really said is, this stinks. I don't like this. And, and truth be told, I want a God that will do what I want done when I want it done and how I think it should be done. If I'm telling you the truth, am I the only one? And if God doesn't do it the way I think it ought to be done, then something's wrong. I mean, what's up with God not showing up? I mean, after all, I'm the one that's hurting. I'm the one that's suffering. I'm losing. And, and when that happens, there's a part of me that wants to say, Jesus, if you'd only been there when I asked you to be there, this stuff wouldn't have happened. I mean, that whole experience, it, it hurts and it's uncomfortable. It's kind of like having a fever. You all know what, remember what a fever feels like? You probably do. You've had one that long ago. Your, your forehead is hot. In fact, your whole body can somehow feel hot. Your muscles ache. Your head aches. You shiver, but you're sweating. And all you want to do is lay around the house and do nothing. And if you're anything like me, you get irritable. And you don't believe me, ask Nancy. And you just want to plain simple be left alone. Now, it used to be that doctors did everything they could to bring a fever down. In fact, many of the over-the-counter medicines you can go into CVS or Walgreens or Walmart or Sam's Club today to buy the jumbo size... Uh, they're all designed to do that. If you, if you go out, you're going to find products that say fever reducer or reduces fever on the label. But about 30 years ago, uh, researchers discovered that moderate fevers, moderate fevers, uh, were a necessary part of the body's arsenal for fighting infections. Now, these physicians were not talking about really high fevers like the 103s and the 104s which are dangerous and you ought to go see a doctor immediately. But with most kind of moderate or what we might call low-grade fevers, and most of them are, researchers have found out that it's better to just let that fever run its course. Now, why is that? Well, it's because illnesses caused by bacteria thrive on iron. 
And when you have a fever, your iron level drops. This, in turn, deprives the bacteria of their food source. And in addition, there's some new research that indicates a high temperature will also boost the immune system's ability to actually function. And when your fever spikes, the body goes into overdrive. It produces T cells, which attack the very source of disease. Now, you probably all wonder, what's this all about? Well, fevers, which I do not like, which hurt me and make me uncomfortable, were actually, when you think about it, designed by God to help me. They were designed to fix what ails me, as my grandma used to say. Guess what? God created fevers to serve a purpose in our life. There are times when God does that in my spiritual life and in your spiritual life. There are times when he allows the, quote, fever to run its course. There are times when he allows us to be a little bit uncomfortable and sometimes to be downright uncomfortable. There are times when he does that because... He has something that he either wants to change or fix or heal in our life. And there are times when God allows us to suffer to bring about a greater purpose in our life. And that's exactly what Jesus did for Lazarus. And if you caught what I read before, that's exactly what he did for the disciples. He had something to teach them. Jesus brought suffering into Lazarus' life. To give his life greater purpose. Now up until that time. All we know about Lazarus was that he was a friend of Jesus. When their sisters sent word to Jesus. It said in verse 3. Lord the one you love is sick. Now it's been speculated by some Bible scholars. That Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Were probably fairly wealthy. And may have actually financially supported Jesus ministry. But from that day on. That when Jesus raised him from the dead. Lazarus goes from being a friend to becoming a ministry partner. It was when Jesus came to Lazarus' grave that he declared the most powerful statement of his entire ministry. It's found in verses 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I read a story this last week that asked, which side of the cross do you live on? And I had to, needless to say, I had to read the article. I wanted to know what it's about. A lot of people spend all this time about the suffering and death and beatings and all that stuff about Jesus. And they forget that on the other side of the cross, he's alive. Even if you die, you live. See, in about a week, Jesus was going to prove it. In a few short days, he was going to rise from the grave. But before that happens, Jesus lets Lazarus become something of a dry run. Before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he's already raised two other people. That 12-year-old daughter, remember Jairus' daughter, and the son, the widow of Nain. But those folks had only been dead for a few hours. Now, according to Jewish theology... A person wasn't really dead until after they'd been in the grave for three days. And this is from a second century Jewish rabbi whose name is Bar Kapara, or the son of Kapara. Until three days after his death, the soul keeps on returning to the grave, thinking that it will go back into the body. 
But when it sees that the facial features have become disfigured, it departs and abandons it, meaning the body. Now, that's kind of bizarre theology, uh, even though it's kind of based on a, what I would call a rather creative rendering of a verse out of the book of Job. But to the Jewish way of thinking, it was pretty obvious. People were not really, really, really dead until they'd been in the grave long enough for the body to actually start to decay. So Jesus was using Lazarus' death as kind of a proving ground here that declared that Jesus truly was the resurrection and the life. And he was very careful to make sure that Lazarus was really, 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 really dead. Now, he didn't allow that body to lie in the grave a few hours. He did not allow it to lay there for a day or two days or three days. He let him in there four full days. And as far as any critic could ever be concerned, Lazarus was really, 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 really dead. His body had been there in there long enough to be disfigured by the ravages of death. That's why when Jesus orders the grave to be opened, Martha immediately jumps up and protests. You can read that further in verse 39. It says, but Lord, by this time, there is a bad odor. Why? For he has been in there four days. No one has ever been raised from the dead after four days. No one in the Old Testament, no one in the New Testament. No one has ever come back from the dead after four days in the grave except Lazarus. And we're told, because Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead in verse 45, that many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. They saw this miracle of a man dead four days come back to life. And they suddenly believed that Jesus truly was the resurrection and the life. In fact, in, uh, the effect of John's resurrection is so powerful that in the next chapter, in verses 9 to 11, it says a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, not only because of him, but also to go and see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Now, I want to kind of pause in the middle of the sermon and talk about something that fits here that you may not understand. You've got people who, got, who believed in Jesus because they saw it. You also had some other people who decided that they needed to kill Lazarus and they needed to kill Jesus. The question is why? Well, you'd have to go back to your Old Testament to figure that one out. And it goes back to a belief that the Old Testament Jews, in fact, some of the New Testament Jews had, and that is that when the Messiah would come, he would stand on the Mount of Olives and he would raise the dead. Now, where is Bethany, where Lazarus and Mary and Martha live? It's on the Mount of Olives. You can read about it in Zechariah 14 and in, in Isaiah 26. But Jesus' actions in raising Lazarus at Bethany on the Mount of Olives constituted a messianic statement. I have no doubt that those Pharisees and other people said, Oh my gosh, this guy is claiming to be the Messiah, but guess what? This is not the Messiah we want. This is not the Messiah we were looking for. And it caused them to make this final decision that they were going to put him to death. So when Jesus does not show up, at Lazarus' sickbed, there was a reason. The reason was to bring about the faith of those 
who he was going to die for. But still, John 11.35 says, Jesus wept. Why? I think it's because Jesus takes no pleasure whatsoever in our suffering. God knows our pains and our sorrows. We just sang that in What a Friend We Have in Jesus. We sang about that in the first hymn today. And even when God allows us to suffer for our own good, he knows it hurts us. And he's saddened because of what he knows that we're going through. That's why Jesus wept. That's also part of the reason Romans 8.26 assures us of this when we pray that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. When we do not know what to pray for, in the moments of our sorrow and our weakness, when we just don't know what to do, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. That little Bible verse from the book of Romans is saying that part of the Holy Spirit's job, that resident president, if you will, the spirit who lives in us from the times of our baptism when we came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, his job is to communicate the depths of our emotions. Have you ever felt like you really, really wanted to pray and needed to pray and you, had, you just didn't know what to pray? Or is that just me? I have a feeling all of us have been in that way one time. And guess what? That's when the Holy Spirit is kind of taking our moanings and our groanings and he's like translating them up to heaven. I mean, there, there's certainly going to be times in our lives where we may not know how to express our pain and suffering. Particularly if we're laying on a bed of pain and suffering. And, and even if we could put those feelings into words, it wouldn't begin to even touch how deeply we have been hurt. But guess what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Why? Because once you become a Christ follower, once you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, once you've repented of your sins and confessed that Jesus Christ is now Lord of your life, once you've been buried in the waters of the Christian baptism and have been risen up to a new life, God promises that the Holy Spirit will live in you. That's his promise. I mean, I can't say anything simpler than that. He cares for you. Cares about you. He understands you and me. He loves all of us so much that he he wants to know he wants us to know that he cares about our deepest feelings. Now, a number of years ago, I wanted to share an illustration when I preached about Lazarus that I was kind of led to believe was a true story. It told of a time in Lazarus' life when he was growing old. Now, all through his life, as you can well imagine, Lazarus had, had told and retold the story of his being raised from the dead. But as he got older in that day, there was a rather cruel and evil Roman emperor by the name of Caligula. Now, Caligula ruled with an iron fist. He relied on executions to keep himself in power. In fact, Caligula once said, they do not have to love me, as long as they fear me. And so he kept people in fear because he kept them in fear that he would kill them. But there was this new faith that had arrived in town, in Rome. It was a faith that Caligula, the Roman Empire, grew to hate. And these Christians had a faith in God that caused them not to be afraid of death. And one of the most powerful preachers of that faith in Rome was a man named Lazarus. 
Now, soon Lazarus' story reached Caligula's throne, and he decided that he was going to make an example of Lazarus. He brought Lazarus before him in chains, and he demanded, renounce your faith in this Christ. But Lazarus refused, and in anger, Caligula said, if you don't renounce your faith, I'll have you put to death. Now, for a moment, Lazarus stood there and said nothing. But then he smiled. And then he started to laugh. And he continued to laugh and laugh. And the more he laughed, the more angry Caligula got. He said, don't you realize I have the power of life and death? I have the power to put you to death. And Lazarus just continued to stand there and laugh. And he finally stopped and he looked at the emperor and said, you can't hold me in fear. Caligula, death is dead. I've been there. I've done that. I have the t-shirt. You can't scare me. Now, that's a great story. Unfortunately, I found out it's not true. It's a fictional account of Lazarus' life found in the play written by Eugene O'Neill called Lazarus Laughed. Now, when I found that out, I thought, oh, bummer. <laughs> it would have been so great if this were even close to being a true story. And for a while, I just sat and considered how sad it was that I, I couldn't use that as a true story as an illustration the next time I talked about Lazarus. But then I realized uh, that, in a way, the truth about this story of Lazarus was even more powerful than I realized at first because the writer of the play, Eugene O'Neill, was an unbeliever. He was a humanist who refused to accept the resurrection of Christ from the dead. But, you know, even this atheist was struck by the power of this biblical story of Lazarus. He wrote of his, of his play, certainly it contains the highest writing I've ever done. Certainly it composes in the theater more than anything else I've done. And then he also wrote this. Certainly I know of no play like Lazarus at all. And I know of no one who can play Lazarus at all, the lead I mean. Who can we get to laugh as one would laugh who had completely lost, even from the depths of the unconscious, all traces of the fear of death. I mean, think about it for a moment. Even this atheist, Eugene O'Neill, even for him, there was an understanding of the power of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And even though O'Neill rejected Jesus Christ, he understood the central message of the story. Death had been defeated. Christ offered the promise of life and hope in the, res in the resurrection. See, it was an atheist who wrote Lazarus's defiant cry, You cannot hold me in fear, death is dead. But the sad thing is that even as powerful a statement as that is, it did not change O'Neill his mind. He died an atheist. He said he was almost persuaded one time of the promises of Christ. But guess what, friends? Almost is not enough. Eugene O'Neill went to his grave without ever laying hold of the promise that Jesus truly offered. The promise of life from the dead. A promise that he has given to you and me who believe in him as Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Almost persuaded 
is not enough. We sang a invitation hymn a week or so ago down in Angola prison. I'd never heard the song before, and I had to go up and copy down just a little phrase because it struck me. The old invitation hymn said, Almost cannot avail, almost is but to fail. Sad, sad, that bitter wail, almost, but lost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our prayer is that we are not a kind of a person who almost believes, but who truly believes that you are the resurrection and the life. I mean, certainly one of the most powerful things you ever said was that you are the resurrection of the life. And if anyone believes in me, will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe that? And Lord, we want to say a resounding yes to that. Yes, we believe. And even like that, that ruler one time said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Even in the midst of that, Father, we pray that you strengthen our belief in you as Lord and Savior, the giver of life both in this world and the life to come. Thank you for this gift made possible through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.